You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Multimedia Strategy at Stylus. Today, we're going to be discussing the reinvention of social media in the post-pandemic era. To discuss this, I'm joined by Rex Woodbury, Principal at Index Ventures and writer of the excellent newsletter Digital Native, and Julia Ahrens, Editor of Pop Culture and Media at Stylus. So welcome to you both. So first off, Rex, it would be great to hear um, a bit about your work at Index and the path you took to becoming an investor. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And all my favorite topics here, you know, fascinated by pop culture, by social media. I mean, I kind of liken my interest areas at Index to, to the intersection of culture and technology. And so I, I tend to focus on consumer technology. We're one team investing across three funds. So we're a global firm. We've got a seed fund, um, an early stage fund, and a growth fund. And um, I spend a lot of time thinking through the future of consumer technology, how people are using the internet in new ways, how people are interacting with each other and, and with content and finding new forms of, of work and self-expression online. And that often means the creator economy. You know, we've been fortunate to work with companies like Discord and Patreon and Roblox over the years. It also often means the future of social media and, and communication, as well as gaming and the metaverse and crypto and all of these things kind of you know, bleed into each other and are all sort of the building blocks of this future form of, of digital economies. So those are the things that get me excited. And before you were Index, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about sort of how you how you came to join the company? Yeah, I started my career in impact investing, actually. And so I was in later stage investing at TBG Growth and the Rise Fund, which is TBG's social impact fund. And on the growth side, did a lot of consumer. On the Rise Fund, did a lot of, of social impact investing. And I think for me, you know, I kind of realized at one point that technology was the most formative and impactful thing happening. And in our lifetimes, you know, I wanted to build a career around tech and how it was changing the world and, and how people interact with each other and with the world. And so that got me really interested in the internet and, and software. I worked at Airtable right before coming to Index and was always interested in sort of how tech is becoming more accessible to people to build in new ways and to work in new ways and just you know, become creators. Maybe and so, just, um, sorry to interrupt, but maybe you could just yeah. explain what Airtable is to, to those who might not have heard of it. Yeah, Airtable is a product that lets people build with software in new ways. And so it's, uh, you know, people might have heard of low code, no code. It's the idea that in the future, not everyone needs to be an engineer to be able to harness the power of software. And so early iterations of that, and, and you know, I think of this when I think of the creator economy with a broad definition of back in the day, you know, early iterations were maybe website builders, which people are familiar with. So back in you know, the early 2000s, it became possible as a small business owner or a mom and pop shop to you know, use Squarespace or Wix or WordPress to create your website. And then later, you know, Shopify let people launch a digital storefront without any technical skills. And we've seen that expand over time. And what Airtable does is it lets you build applications using without code to, to run your business. And so a small business owner might create an app on Airtable that lets her, you know, automate a certain process of her work or something like that. And it's a, it's a very powerful tool that lets people manipulate software in new ways. And, you know, I think of 
the creator phenomenon as something broader than just consumer. It's a way that people interact with technology in new ways. And in the future, you know, I think, you know, engineers will certainly be a critical part of the infrastructure of the internet, but also, you know, more people, the majority of the world without those skills will be able to use computing and software in new ways. So before we get on to discussing reinventing social media, it'd be great to hear about your perspective on the past 18 months, how you think consumer online behavior has changed as a result of the pandemic, and maybe how long lasting you think those changes may be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a fascinating time to, to be an investor, to be an entrepreneur, to be an operator. I mean, so much change has been compressed into such little time. And so, you know, there's a Lenin quote, actually, that I think, you know, I might butcher this quote here, but it's something like, you know, there are decades where nothing happens and then weeks where decades happen. And I think of that often when I think of March 2020, of how, you know, in such little time, there are so many massive behavior changes were compressed into the first few months of the pandemic. And we've seen enormous step changes in, you know, Everything ranging from how we learn to digital health adoption, telehealth to remote work and how people approach online communication. And so, so much of the consumer interaction with technology has transformed over the last 18 months. And, you know, now as the world reopens, I think we'll see, you know, maybe reaching more of a steady state, but a lot of these different digital industries are starting at a higher baseline. Alongside your work at uh, Index, you also write Digital Native, uh, a newsletter on Substack, which is a fantastic read. And uh, I, I recommend everybody who uh, is listening, who isn't following that already, should sign up straight away. And you write there of some of the startups that you feel are, are tapping into new consumer attitudes to social. So I'm particularly interested in, in hearing about sort of what these new shifts in social are, uh, especially you talk a lot about a shift away from kind of Instagram glossiness to more unfiltered behaviors. So it'd be great to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, another reason that I got so interested in these topics were, you know, when I was starting my career, I was also building up a, a presence on social media and, and earning a living for a time through Instagram. And I always call this sort of the mid 2010s, you know, era of social media, much more sort of the influencer age than the creator age. You know, social media was certainly more performative. It was more curated. I came of age during an era, it was a more airbrushed persona. And I think we've seen a shift away from that. I call it the kind of Kylie Jenner to Charlie D'Amelio shift of, you know, if Kylie was about aspiration and she kind of embodied Instagram and, and its ethos because Instagram really, you know, originally was conceived as literally a filtered version of reality. We've seen a shift toward authenticity over time and the performative aspects of social media have sort of faded away as younger users who are digital natives, who are more authentic and vulnerable online and share more of themselves have embraced the self-expression that platforms like TikTok offer. But for me, you know, I, I built up an Instagram and, you know, was, was doing sponsored content there. And I think at some point I kind of realized that I was measuring my own self-worth in likes and follower accounts. And those weren't necessarily metrics by which I wanted to define my life. And so I, so I took a step back. I, I took a year off of Instagram. I decided to, you know, write a Substack, express myself in different ways online, you know, join TikTok, you know, try to be creative in, in different ways. And, you know, I think my arc has kind of followed the, the broader arc of a lot of millennials on social media. Yeah, Julia, speaking as another millennial on social media, what are your thoughts on this from a stylist perspective in terms of the shifts that you're seeing uh, in social media? 
I think it's really interesting because sort of the past era of social really encouraged users to almost present like a scissor reel of their lives, right? And then the scissor reel became more consuming, I guess, in the past decade. All of us, including you, Christian, here, were probably guilty of framing like the perfect hot dog legs frame for their Instagram feed. And while many people want to connect 24-7, no one can really perform 24-7. And what I think the next generation of consumers and then the platforms that connect with them are the ones that have better controls for authenticity and spontaneity kind of built in. Platforms like um, Paparazzi, which is the photo sharing platform where only your friends can stock your feed. And these sort of more controlled user experiences, I think, make these platforms more social in a sense because users return to their IRL experiences more quickly. And they're constrained enough to be single purpose almost. And I think that is actually this simplicity is what scores really well against the kitchen sink and really time sink environments that the Facebook portfolio presents. And they're much more powerful in enabling people to actually have a life worth sharing if they so choose, rather than focusing on creating a personality online that doesn't necessarily reflect a reality that's achievable. Yeah, and it's an interesting point you make there about single use, because I feel like, and I, you know, this is this is just my uh, impression from the past year, but it does feel like because we all had a bit more time uh, to experiment with apps over the past 12 months, there has been a lot more possibility for single use apps to kind of break through, whether that's something like Cameo, or as you say, paparazzi, and even something like Dispo, which I'm not, I haven't caught up with Dispo since the debacle, but I'm assuming it still has an audience. Again, it was a very, you know, very simple single use app. Rex, have you seen that as a trend? Is there more a chance for developers to experiment with very sort of niche ideas at the moment? Because there is so much, so much of us are very online at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting thinking about this because just last week, Adam Masseri, the the CEO of Instagram, you know, posted a video online where he basically was announcing Instagram's priorities for the next kind of decade. And and he said, you know, we are no longer a photo sharing app and the priorities are creators and video and shopping and messaging. Um, You know, and I think Instagram certainly has sort of lost its simplicity over time. What made it special and what was its core value was its simplicity. And, you know, it's now kind of everything to everyone. And to Julia's point, you're seeing paparazzi emerge, you're seeing Dispo. Another one is Be Real, which is an app out of Paris where, you know, every day a user is given two minutes to, at a random time, to, to be real, to take a photo from their front facing camera and their back facing camera, whatever they're doing. So right now, if it told me to be real, you know, I would say, I'm talking to these guys and I would take a selfie and only can my friends see that if they also post their own kind of moment of being real. And so all of these are really built around serendipity and spontaneity and authenticity and these new kind of Gen Z ethos um, that Instagram wasn't initially built with. And, you know, I think it's interesting to see this. I think, you know, Snapchat is a challenging competitor as well. You know, people often view these as... Instagram competitors because they're photo sharing apps, but they forget that younger people more often use Snapchat than Instagram. And so I think it'll be challenging to to unseat the sort of behemoths that are Instagram and Facebook. But, you know, it's really about building with the right ethos, getting creators on these platforms. And also, you know, not to not to lead us into another rabbit hole, but I do think there will be sort of crypto native elements to this too, where the future social platforms might be user owned. I mean, speaking of user-owned, I think the reciprocity that's inherent to be real, the fact that you can only see your friend's content if you yourself have created content, 
terrible word, but there we go. It's really interesting because it just encourages a much more active engagement. I think it's a really good inoculation against the sort of, you know, just sitting there consuming other people's lives and presentations and kind of having that have a negative impact on your mental life. And I think you're much more mindful if you're also creating with exactly. your group. Yeah, I mean, the internet is really in a march toward being more per- participatory, to your point, Julia. I mean, mm. we're seeing there's this old rule of social media, the 99-1 rule, where you know 90% of people are lurkers. They you know consume but don't necessarily partake. And then 9% of people are commenters and 1% are kind of the creators really driving. You know, I think this was true of Facebook. It's true of, of Instagram and others. But over time, the march has gotten more and more toward creators and participating. And, you know, TikTok totally breaks that rule. I think, you know, something like 60 or 70% of people on TikTok have posted content. You know, YouTube, I think it was like one in a thousand people will actually be creators as well as consumers on TikTok. You know, it's what, you know, four and five or three and five. And so I think we're seeing that shift toward people creating. And part of that is, you know, the tools that enable you to create are easier. It's much easier with the sort of no-code tools and TikTok to, to create a video than the knowledge required to, to create a YouTube video. But also it's this culture of creation of people remixing each other and jumping on each other's trends and sounds and, you know, challenges and the building blocks of culture. And so to your point, Julia, you know, instead of us perhaps having a difficult time with mental health by just consuming other people's lives and not necessarily participating. Now there are new ways that people can express themselves and be creative in new ways that they haven't have at, haven't had access to in the past. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Just a quick pause in proceedings to let you know that we're heading off for the summer. Future Thinking will return in September with a new format that will bring you even more essential insights into innovations that are changing the worlds of business, media, culture, design, and more. I hope you'll join us and have a good summer. So just to go back to what we were talking about before in terms of, you know, getting real versus the sort of glitziness of Instagram, the flip side of of this sort of unfiltered trend, this growing shift towards people using digital avatars as sort of their online doppelgangers and it's a kind of a whole new kind of online interaction i've written about it on stylus in in our digital doubles report so in this instance you are you know you're you're exploring social platforms and exploring online environments via a, a sort of digital proxy so i'd love to discuss this especially in terms in reference to an app called soul which you wrote about rex on on digital native because it combines so many of the current trends that that we're all talking about from avatars to community to the creator economy and so on but yeah i'd like to would really like to hear about your thoughts on the use of digital avatars at the moment yeah soul is a really fascinating company it embodies a lot of the trends of of future social interaction online. Just to quickly summarize it, so Seoul is little known outside China, but in China, it's the fifth largest social network right now. And it is completely avatar-based, to your point. And so the way I join Seoul is I, you know, create an avatar to myself and it maps to my body. So, you know, if I smile, my avatar smiles. If I, you know, gesture, my avatar gestures, but Seoul actively discourages users from sharing their real name, their location, their age, their identity. And so what it does is it decouples your sort of offline persona, which so much of social interaction has centered around with this form of online digital persona that you can express yourself through. And then it's also all AI and interest-based and how you connect with people. And so similar to TikTok, where it might say, 
Rex, instead of you interacting online with your college classmate who, you know, you know, and are Facebook friends with, it's saying, you know, you are most like-minded with this person on the other side of the world. Let's connect you. And Soul sends you off to interest-based planets, is what they call it, where I can interact with these people. And so it's this shift toward community away from, from the sort of offline social graphs. But, you know, around the avatar point, I think it embodies a lot of what we've spoken about of this rejection of internet perfection, of people always feeling like they need to be airbrushed and curated. And Julia, you said the hot dog legs and a lot of just the the pressure to perform online, you know, now people can express themselves without necessarily feeling like they're always being judged on their appearance or need to be perfect. Yeah, Julie, I'd love to hear sort of your, your perspective on the whole avatar revolution at the moment. Mm, I think, again, especially in the sole case study, but just generally, I feel like the increased use of avatars amongst audiences and the sort of turn towards passion communities are actually connected because I think what's happening and coming back to the point that you know middle-aged millennial who's been very online for a long time I think everything is kind of turning into fandom culture now in that sense if you think back to the sort of proto-social platforms the you know kind of stuff where you would socialize online before Facebook made you socialize with the people you know in real life it was all about you know the fandoms the interests that you share from the X-Files text message boards in the 90s all the way through the emergence of life journal and that kind of stuff. And people did craft a sort of personality, but very specifically for their passion communities. And I think the evolution that we're currently seeing with, you know, avatars becoming more sophisticated, mapping to people's facial expression, like Rex says, and I think it'll allow people to actually interface with the sort of peers with whom they share an interest in a much more authentic way by letting them remove themselves a bit from, you know, the everyday flesh phase that they present to people. And rather than this being inauthentic, I think it's actually much more of a sense of like virtual code switching almost. And it's just really exciting in terms of creating a much more wholesome social landscape again online to allow people to connect over shared interests versus self-presentation. You said virtual code switching, just to clarify, did you? I did, yes. Yeah, so could you you just sort of a quick line on what you mean by virtual code switching? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, code switching is um, a sociological term from mostly the study around people of different ethnic backgrounds, but it can also lead into, say, working class background versus engaging in higher and upper class environments. It's basically the way that we also just navigate the real world as people. You know, we're not the same person wherever we go. We behave differently at work than we do at home with our family than we do with our friends. And that's broadly what we use when we talk about code switching is just adapting our behavior to these social environments we find ourselves in in any given moment. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Great definition. So inevitably, you know, we've been talking about avatars. We, we touched a tiny little bit on crypto. And I think, you know, the inevitable next step is to talk about the metaverse, which we've been writing a lot about on Stylus. And the metaverse, for those who might not know uh, what the term refers to, is is this idea that we will soon potentially be a part of a kind of always-on virtual environment that we can we can enjoy at, through our avatars, and our avatars will become our sort of digital versions of ourselves in this always-on. Uh, virtual environment. Ready Player One is sort of the the go-to reference point for what some of the metaverse might look like. But right now, the most obvious examples are things like Fortnite and Roblox. So it's a huge subject, but I would love to hear about your thoughts, Rex, from from the point of view of of brands and marketers. A lot of our audience is, is, is from brands and a lot of them are thinking about how to 
connect with uh, younger audiences who you know are spending most of their time now in these sorts of virtual environments and, and particularly in gaming environments so when it comes to the potential of the metaverse what should they be paying attention to when trying to get ahead of this trend yeah i mean i think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned the gaming companies i think um I often say gaming is sort of the vanguard of a lot of different trends in consumer internet. And I really think for the last decade, a lot of these quote unquote gaming companies have really been social networks masquerading as gaming companies. I mean, a lot of people go to Fortnite, not necessarily to, to win anymore, but just to hang out with friends and Fortnite launched Party Royale, which is separate from Battle Royale as, as sort of a social place to, to go hang out and you know attend a Travis Scott concert or you know, just spend time with friends. Grand Theft Auto has a casino that is untethered from, you know, the purpose of the game. It's just a place to hang out. Roblox really is about socializing. And so I think these are the places that are getting people comfortable with the, the immersive digital experiences and interactions that the metaverse will have. And so I think you can look to gaming, you know, you can look to, to crypto and you can look to business models, um, shifting away from advertising to, to commerce I and mean, sort of the micro payments and virtual currencies and pretty robust digital economies, whether it's Robux and Roblox or V-Bucks and Fortnite or, or Minecoins and Minecraft. I think all of these are paving the road. They're the building blocks of the metaverse. And I think, you know, other thoughts on the metaverse, I mean, I think it'll be decentralized and, and that's sort of the, the crypto ethos. You know, I think people will have jobs and have work in these virtual worlds. And, and that's something that we're starting to see whether, you know, you're a digital architect or you're, you know, a gallery curator of digital art or you, you know, are, are helping to, you know, run a store online here. And so all of these are different ways that, you know, people will go to the metaverse. Fantastic. So at the end of each episode, I, I ask my guests three quick fire questions. And the first one is, what's the best business or career advice you've ever been given? For me, I mean, you know, it sounds cliche. I think growing up, my dad had one of those, you know, he put on our refrigerator, one of those quotes of, you know, do, you know, what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And uh, I think a lot of people, and I'm just thinking about this now because I saw a tweet yesterday where someone tweeted, you know, it's kind of don't listen to anyone who tells you to to follow your passion instead do things that you're good at and be great at them and you know i don't think that's good advice i think you do have to follow things that you're inherently interested in i'd say i spent a few years in the beginning of my career trying to force interests in areas that weren't as authentic to me and it was a helpful study for me to step back and say you know when i open the newspaper what are the kind of headlines that i'm drawn to or what section am i drawn to and you know, I love reading about tech and I love reading about culture. And, you know, when I was growing up, I was, you know, memorizing box office grosses and I would memorize the bestseller book lists. And I would look at, you know, the billboard music charts and be fascinated by how many, you know, records different artists sold. And I was always really interested in those statistics around how people were, were interacting with culture. And then over time, you know, as technology seeped into the world, it became, you know, fascinated with, you know, the social platforms with the most users or daily engagement on these different platforms or how people are working in new ways online and, and sort of more business and tech metrics. But it was always just an interaction or an interest in how people interact with tech. And so it took me a while to go back to those roots. But when I said, you know, okay, Rex, like, what were you passionate about when you were younger? Why? And then, you know, how did those translate into the world today? You know, I kind of rekindled that love for those authentic things. And I, you know, love my job now. I love talking about these topics with people like you. And um, 
feel very privileged to be doing something, learning about the future and the things that I love is a key part of the job. So the best advice I'd say is just returning to your roots and asking yourself, what do you actually truly enjoy doing? And thinking back to that refrigerator note that was a little cheesy, but that my dad put up there and actually realizing that in order to be world-class at something, in order to be truly excellent, you do have to have a deep, deep love for it. Brilliant. The second question is, what's a consumer problem or challenge you don't think has been successfully solved yet? Consumer problem or challenge? I mean, I think, you know, since we've been talking about social media, I mean, I think there are lots of opportunities in the future of social. You know, I think we're seeing the, for the first time in probably a decade, decade and a half, um, you know, the incumbents be really vulnerable. You know, TikTok certainly is on Facebook's mind is a huge you know, competitor now, but we're also seeing paparazzi and be real and dispo and crypto native, you know, social networks like Showtime. And I think when you think about the march of the internet, it's the story of moving away from gatekeepers and intermediaries. And so, you know, legacy media was disrupted by, you know, the self-serve platforms that instead of me going through book publishers, I get to, you know, directly, directly publish my book online, you know, instead of going through record labels, maybe I can find a community of, of fans online and directly post my music on SoundCloud or Spotify. And so I think um, what we've seen is these internet platforms have become the new gatekeepers. They're the new intermediaries that were built for advertisers and not for creators or consumers. And so there's an opportunity to actually build these platforms for users, for creators in a new way. And, and I think two things, one that'll be crypto native. I mean, so blockchain will be an important part of the solution there. And two, it won't be an ad centric business model. It will probably be commerce centric. It'll have a virtual currency embedded in these economies. It will be built around micropayments. You know, again, we can look to, to gaming as sort of a harbinger of, of these trends. But, you know, I think the story of the internet for the next decade will be this decentralization. It'll be user owned and controlled. Um, you know, built on blockchain and, and also, you know, be built around digital economies and, and commerce and not advertising. Fantastic. And finally, which individuals or brands do you look to for inspiration in your work? Um, I really look to the entrepreneurs in our portfolio. I mean, there are so many people that we're lucky to work with, you know, whether it's Dave at Roblox or Jason at Discord or Dylan at Figma, you know, they're all brilliant people who, you know, Jack at Patreon, I think it's easy now to say, of course, you know, there should be a browser-based, you know, design tool like Figma, or of course there should be, you know, a place for creators to earn income like Patreon. But, you know, a decade ago, those weren't obvious stories. And, you know, the visionaries and the, the entrepreneurs are always the ones who I think are, you know, most ahead of the curve and seeing the world differently. And I feel lucky to interact with them and learn from them. Fantastic. Uh, I, I hope everyone listening has has taken a lot from that because I think the future is is very interesting and exciting for for social media in particular, but everybody building on top of it, and uh, and all the consumer creators too. Lots of opportunity out there. So I'd like to thank my guests Rex Woodbury and Julia Aarons, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear your feedback on Twitter. We're at stylus underscore live, and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at We Are Stylus. We are not yet on Be Real or uh, Paparazzi, but maybe sometime soon we will be. Anyway, join us next time for more future thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. 
If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.